Awesome. Awesome. I just realized I have this like uh, uh, script that uh, if someone zooms in, they, they, uh-oh. You know, they shouldn't see that. So I'll put that there <laughs> instead. <laughs> nice. So you're going to break news on what you're working on next is what you're saying. No, exactly. That's the <laughs> – we can't do that. Let's not <laughs> Uh, well, welcome to more Score, Joe Trapanese. It's been three years now since we had you on Score the Podcast, so you've uh, you've been busy. I know we had a pandemic, but um, you've got a lot of Man, stuff have you been busy. on IMDb, yeah. and uh, you've been working um, Shadow and Bone. Season 2 is coming soon. Uh, the Witcher Season 2, which is out now, and then um, Spiderhead, which was announced that you're, you're scoring that as well with uh, your collaborator, Kaczynski. Um, what, yes. uh, l- why don't we start there? Cause that's kind of the newest information out there. Um, what can you tell us about the film, uh, and, and your excitement level for it coming out? I really can't tell you much cause we're not allowed to yet, but I just, I just think it's really, it's something new, um, from everyone from not just, uh, not just Joe Kaczynski, not just me, not just Chris Hemsworth, you know, it's, it's a whole it's it's a very unexpected film, and so uh, I think uh, people are going to have a lot of fun with it, especially especially if you come to the table thinking you're going to see another like you know Tron or Oblivion or whatever. You know, it's it's not that. It's something really different, which is super fun for me because, as you could tell from you had mentioned my IMDb, I love doing all sorts of things that keep me engaged and, and having fun in this business. So yeah, I'm excited to share it. I'm really proud of that score. Are you? when you say it's a different project altogether, like as musically, do you try to take projects like that where you can do something completely different? Um, Cause obviously you, you know, you, you, you have like a, a background in some of these things uh, like working with Tron uh, straight out of Compton. Like you have done different types of genres. I don't know quite what I'm asking here, but <laughs> I think I know being able to ask you a question. Cause I know you can't talk about anything, <laughs> but uh, are you able to take leaps and do something different um, in this project? Are you doing something completely different than you've never done before? I guess is that's what exactly right. No, that's exactly right. I think, you know, I'd get really bored if I did the same thing over and over. And over. Um, you know, I make it a point. It's not the only factor to whether I say yes on a project, but it certainly is a factor is whether I'm going to have a platform to do something interesting. And, and that, and that interesting can be on many levels. One, one could be like, you know, I did a film uh, right before the pandemic called Happily, where the director said, you know, I want you to write the score that no one else will allow you to write. So I just went off and did some of the wackiest things I've ever done, which is, you know, I would I would record a lot of audio at 192K, so like a super high sample rate, so that then I could play it back. I'd force the computer to play it back, kind of like you could with tape, where you're playing it slower and it transposes I would force the computer to play it back at 44.1. So it's like, or 48K, which is like, so if it's four octaves down, it's four times slower. So that's one reason why that score sounds so bizarre is because I had an opportunity to do that. That being said, that's not, you know, that's the extreme side of things. It's really fun, too, to do it in a more nuanced way. Like with Robin Hood, when I did that film a few years ago, I said, you know, this is a big action film. I've done big action with a bit of sci-fi, with a bit of... Uh, superhero type of vibes. I've done that before, but this director is looking for something really different and really unique within that genre. So, you know, I like to say when we work, you know, we establish a box, 
But what gets really exciting to me is how far we push against the walls of that box. And so on Spiderhead, um, what was unique about that is I, I built a brand new box. Like I read the short story. It's based on a George Sanders uh, short story, an incredible sci-fi writer. Um, I read the short story. I read the script. And then I just like woke up with some idea. Like I literally, this never happens. I'm not some guy who's like, you know, oh, I have a genius idea. You know, it's just not, I'm more of like, I show up to work. I work really hard. I, I write music. Um, but this was an instance where because I was engaged in this unique way of um, reading and, and, and actually getting into a story from a visceral standpoint, um, I just, music started coming out and that it was a type of music that I hadn't written before. So it was really fun. It, it's amazing when I have the opportunity to do that. I'm really grateful. What is the creative process like when you are experimenting with something that is new to you, that feels new to you? You're in kind of new territory. You kind of have to figure out the rules of what's going to work and what's not. I was thinking of your example of, you know, recording something and then basically slowing it down to 44.1 or, you know, whatever, that kind of a thing. It seems to me that could just as easily have been like, oh man, this is unusable. Like I didn't really, I didn't realize that that little thing is in there and that ruins the whole, the whole take I, of it. Don't worry. There's plenty uh, <laughs> on the cutting room floor that didn't make it. And, that, okay. and you know, that's part of, you know, that's part of the experimentation processes. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that just doesn't work. And I, I tell young composers all the time um, that, you know, you have to be okay with, letting go of stuff you know i've i've done i've done projects where i write 30 40 minutes of material before the project begins of you know ideas based on scripts based on conversations with the filmmaker that i wind up just wholesale throwing out you know and say okay none of this actually works but because i did that it then gets me to the place i needed to get to which is certainly different than if i had just waited until the last second or waited until I got a cut of picture and then just started then, you know, I, right. I gave myself, I gave my brain <laughs> the time to, to do, do a little bit of exploration. Um, and then when I do that exploration, it's interesting. Sometimes it's a really solitary process, like with happily where I, I'm just, because that's, a, that's one of the issues. Like I rec I record five minutes of audio at 192 K. I slow it down four times. All of a sudden it's a 20 minute thing that I need to right. like scrub through it. Like, is there anything usable in here? So it becomes this like, almost like a monk you're in the studio, like really just focused on unearthing treasures, you know, trying to find stuff. Other times, like in the case of Spiderhead, I had some really clear instrumentation ideas, but you know, I've learned the older I get, the, it feels like the less I know, you know, as, as trained I am as an orchestrator, you know, I, I found myself reaching out to performers and conductors and people I know say, hey, can I do this on that instrument? What can I do? What And, and same thing with, you know, I'd play things for my music editor and say, hey, this is the type of sound I'm looking for this character. What do you think? And my music editor would give me feedback and say, oh, it needs to be, you know, feels a little fast. Maybe you want to try this. And then, then I'd play it for the director and he'd, he'd give me notes. So I think, you know, it's a willingness you know, there's the monkish side, which is like you're isolated in the studio. But then there's also the side of like, hey, this is a real collaborative process. Uh, let me get other people who know more than me about certain things to help me get to where and I want to go. In terms of that balance, too, because it's almost, you know, the, the exploration side of it feels like, you know, typically if you're, you know, writing a book, let's say, as a, a, a parallel to this. 
the kind of first draft of that is okay. Let's get some ideas on paper. Let's get let's get the outline of this. Let's start to build out you know certain threads, certain characters, certain storylines. Then you start to assemble the bigger thing and kind of start to you know flesh it out a little bit more and and do that level of it. But then it's about kind of bringing that back. You go back and edit. You know, you find all the places where it doesn't work, and um, and so when you're experimenting with something, it seems like you're doing that whole process in a very condensed way and then you're going on to like using that to inform maybe your writing that comes after that but um where do you find the balances i the reason i ask this is a lot of composers will write something you know something orchestral and um will then have the foundation for their entire score they're they're working with a tool set they're familiar with from the start and then try to maybe add some things after the fact but when you're coming in and trying to establish the colors that you're going to use for a canvas how much of that experimentation is is worthwhile and at what stage do you go man i just got to get i just got to get going and then on you know writing this in some way that i already have under my fingertips you just described the team at the whole process yeah i don't really even need to answer that question no you, you know i think you know there's there's so many layers you're exactly right you know there's i try to go into the score with like almost like a log line, like this character is like this, and like for for instance, Arctic, um, a film like that. You know, this character is alone in the Arctic. The director really likes modern neoclassical string music. How do I make this work? And so my log line was like, I need to write organic um, string material, yet I'm going to alter it in a way that makes it part of our environment. So I did all sorts of stuff like taking strings and reamping them through water jugs, stuff like that, you know? Um, so you try to have these big ideas that then you can point to when things go wrong and say, oh my God, like I'm lost. What am, what am I trying to do? Oh, I'm trying to express how lonely this character is and how he's searching for life. You know, that's basically what it was. And it, it came from a conversation with the director and editor about how the op- the film opens with him holding a fish that he just caught and it's moving. It's the first time he's felt something move in a year, two years, however long he's been stranded out here. So, you know, you, you hearken back to these original ideas and hopefully that's like a guiding light for you when you are lost and you're going, Oh my God, I have to just start making music. I just have to start doing this. You know, you try to use that to guide you, but you're right, Matt, there are inevitably points, especially in, crazy production schedules where you're just like, oh my God, I just need to get stuff done. And to me, that's why it's all the more important to have these initial conversations, whatever, like, you know, two, it might be, exactly. It might be two or four years ago that we had that initial conversation. Oh, wow. Okay. But, but, but by the time we're actually like at the end of the project and everything's going wrong and cues are going, getting thrown out, you know, hopefully those original tents, you know, provide you, uh, provide you some guidance. But yeah, other times that's interesting because yeah. we've heard. Um, I mean, Hans has talked about how you know he'll meet with you know Chris Nolan or whoever it is a couple years in advance and take some notes, and then after filming, they come back, they have a assembly of of the film, um, and then he'll revisit those notes and say, "Are you still thinking this? Are you still thinking this? Do you still like this?" And a lot of times things change, but a lot of times it's, "Oh yeah, you're right. That it, we did talk about that. Yeah, I like that." So, do you find yourself in that? part of that process with a director also all the time, you know, things certainly change, but you know, I'm trying to, my goal is to get the conversation to a point to find the most 
essential elements of that film, you know, and drive the music from that point. You know, so because, yeah, so many things change, you know. Oh, a producer doesn't like guitar. So, okay. All right. Well, I had this guitar idea, but let me, let me find a way to change that. And if, if, if I have that core principles, if I've gotten those core principles inside of me of why are we making this film, then I will come up with a good solution for that. That's really what I believe. And, you know, sometimes you have to throw it out the window if everything's really going wrong. But 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 90% of the time, I find that, that those those things, if, what I'm saying right now, those things are a hold true for, for the projects I work on. I'm curious of the experimental ideas that you have. Um, I know that you're always up against a crazy timeline, so you don't have six months to sit there and say, maybe we can run it through water jugs, or maybe we can... We can do some of these. Do you come up with these ideas when you're not involved in a project and say, that could be interesting. Let me bank that. And then when the right project comes out, I have this idea. Or is it a combination of both? Because the clock is crazy in your job. So I, I can't imagine you have that much time to experiment while you're writing. Yeah, it's all of the above. You know, uh, I remember going to Air Studios in London, working with Jeff Foster, this great engineer back in 2010 with Daft Punk when we did Tron Legacy and he he still does this you know there are water jugs on the floor and he's got mics in them and I'm like what the heck is this guy doing so I have this whole conversation with why he does this and the interesting perspective it could give and how it like can has a, these jugs can give a certain resonance and you use them judiciously in a mix and it can provide a little bit of a certain low end so you know that you're exactly right that idea you know that goes into the bank and I go okay that's what he did and then obviously I'm trying to make my own. So what I did for Arctic was um, I recorded some strings. I had these resonator speakers um, that when you attach them to a surface would vibrate that surface and turn that surface into the speaker. It's pretty, pretty cool. And so I put that on the outside of the water jug and then just like Jeff did, put a mic in the water jug, like an SM57, just a really cheap mic. And that became one of the bedrock sounds of, of the sport. Which, by the way, that movie is awesome. If you haven't seen that movie, go go watch it. Really we proud talked of it. about it in our uh, when we chatted with you before, but yeah, that movie's amazing. It's great. Go ahead, Matt. Joe, is there a um when it comes to, you know, those those kind of creative approaches to something, do you find that um do you hit dead ends that are just flat out like this is there is nothing here? And like <laughs> the, the kind of thing where you're like and I guess I'm asking that about resources, really, because, you know, when you go out and you say, oh, man, this will be sweet to go do such and such and record this. And then it comes back and it's, you know, there's no tone to it or there's no like it's going to be you'd have to process it so much to get anything out of it. And then it's totally different. And yes, like, how often yes. do you end up finding just a dead end? And multiple I gotta times turn every day, you know, I think I think I think one of the one of the one of the reasons why certain scores sound so good, I think, is because, you know, composers are willing to to find those dead ends and to use them to propel them into the next journey. You know, like I think, I think, you know, I had a great composition teacher in college who taught me that inside every problem is a great solution, you know? So, um, uh, you know, you hope that what you're, the journey you're on, the dead end is, the dead end is just part of that journey to, to the right place. So you, you had mentioned resources too. I think one important thing, we'll go on a little tangent here. One important thing, that is part of this process is understanding the resources you have, um, which is a budget, you know? So when, when I'm talking about these films, I'm most of the time, I know what 
type roughly budget I'm working with on Arctic, it wasn't a small movie, but it wasn't a big movie either. So I knew I had some budget. I knew I could hire some musicians. I knew I could probably have a little string session somewhere, you know. So that's why it went there. If if I couldn't do that, then it would be something different. It might be like, okay, I could hire one cellist or something, you know. Um, similarly, when I get to go to Air in London or Abbey Road or whatever, that's a that's another. But that's another set of challenges that you could hit dead ends there too. And I think, you know, it's kind of. Uh, please don't uh, get me wrong. I'm not trying to compare myself to uh, Christopher Columbus or something, but you know, I, you you kind of are a bit of an explorer. You know, you are um, you are going out there, and you have to be willing to lose a ship or you, you know lose a week of work because you went down a wrong path. But hopefully, that wrong path has been part of the journey to the right path. A lot of times we'll encounter something like what you mentioned at the start of, of this conversation, like, oh, I can't talk about that yet. Oh, I don't want anyone to know about this yet. You know, things that are locked down. And a, a lot of people assume that for, you know, a Disney project or, you know, like certain specific things, they say, oh, well, no kidding. They would keep all of that stuff locked down with secrecy. But that is almost every project in, you know, the part of kind of the non-disclosure thing when you come aboard a project like that and you basically have to try to protect, you know, the creative ideas of that for the end product. And so it's you and all these other creative people on the inside building things out that are kind of cool. And then there comes a point where, okay, now we can talk about that. Um, is that something that is frustrating when you stumble across a cool idea? <laughs> uh, no, not at all. I, I, you know, there's a certain magic to what we do and to preserve the magic you need to, you need to protect it until it's ready you need to nurture it you know one of the worst things you could do is share the magic too early or at the wrong time um and that could really spoil a project you know i have a friend who said you know the worst thing you could do for a project is release it you know that 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 building the project is as much the art itself and building anticipation and building its excitement and uh, getting it to a place where when you do release it, hopefully, you know, it's in a form that really hits it with people, that people get it. And and if it leaks before that or if it hits people before that or if they understand too much, they already start to form opinions. And I notice this myself if I'm if I'm scrolling Twitter and I see, oh, you know, I saw this film and I heard it was really bad, you know, two months before it's supposed to come out or something, all of a sudden, like, I'm in danger of forming this opinion already that oh that film's bad even if the film is amazing you know so i think you know it's a real danger to you know to expose your baby you know too soon to the harsh environment of of the real world so so i i am fully on board this uh you know protecting protecting the the art until it's ready this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I was just going to touch on really quick. You mentioned the budget, and we, we don't talk a lot about that on, on our shows, but I think it's really interesting, and especially at the level that you're at. When do you really get a grasp of that? I mean, I, I imagine it takes a lot of experience to know, like, this is how much we can spend. This is the idea we have, and, like, figuring all of that stuff out. Aside from all the creative ideas, you have to make it work with the money, and that's the biggest piece of the puzzle, I think. But at you as the composer, like, when do you – do you have a, a sense of that, or is it constantly difficult for you when you're approaching it? It's always difficult. I, I, I wonder if, if, if Hans still has difficulty with budgets and whatnot because, you know, I – I certainly was guilty of thinking like, oh, when I get to a level where I'm at now or whatever, I'd you know be able to you know have an easy conversation about budget and we'd figure it out. But it, it it's <laughs> always a struggle. It's always a struggle, and it's always uh, you know I try to make it less of a struggle of of you know sheer willpower, and I try to make it a struggle of here's the creative conversation I had with the showrunner um, or the director. This is what they want. Here's a budget of what I'm going to need. Let's figure this out. And, you know, I try to drive it from the creative. Um, you know, I had a really eye-opening experience a few years ago where I worked on a film called Finding Ohana. Really beautiful family family film, family adventure, classic, like, Goonies-style uh, adventure, youth adventure film uh, with Netflix. And, you know, they were like, oh, we have this limited budget. This, You know, we only have this as a package. And I was like, well, I love this director. Love this producer, love this story. We'll figure it out. Let's just make it, let's just dive in. And, you know, we're doing this score and it's temped with a lot of, you know, John Williams and classic orchestral music. So we're writing this, you know, (laughs) score. And the director and the producer are thick as thieves. They're like, you know, the, 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 it's a first time director. She's amazing. But the producer has been there, done that. Like he's seen everything. So like they're an amazing team because like she has the energy and the go get them of like first time. Uh, feature filmmaker and he has the experience of like knowing what stuff costs like how to get stuff done and the director comes to my studio one day and says you know uh don't you think we need a real orchestra and i said uh yeah (laughs) and she goes (laughs) you know we we should go to abbey road i'm like that would be awesome and lo and behold this film which went from like package you know like where i could barely afford to go anywhere you know go down to the corner store to record orchestra um all of a sudden turns into where we have a week of sessions at abbey road and it was a great lesson in that your director and your producer are your allies are your friends they're not enemies they have to be you know because if they stand with you and realize like how important the music is and they are willing to invest that they they choose to like okay we don't need 500 visual effects shots will do 480 and because that's literally what visual effects cost visual effects cost so much money compared to music music is like super cheap music is like one of the cheapest things in a film so you know they go okay well and i don't know what the deal was with ohana where they adjusted the budget to get us this budget but i think that's what it takes you know they say okay we we don't need those 20 visual effects shots we'll record abbey road instead with the london symphony etc you know so you know, you really have to keep that in mind. It's everyone's trying to make the film great, you know. And so um, if you're a team, you know, there's a way to do it on a team. That being said, it is funny when, you know, you have those conversations and then, you know, your agents gain calls like, why do they want an orchestra? We have $4, you know. like you know. So, 
look, it's just it's just part of the nature of the business. Um, maybe I, I think the only two people who don't have to deal with that is John Williams and Hans Zimmer. That's my guess. Like I think it, literally everyone else has to deal with that conversation. You know, like you're you're just not going to get an open pocketbook um, to spend whatever you want. Um, and so that's why it's, and that's why it's even more important to have a vision, you know, and that's why, that's why I love making clear to people is like, have a vision for the score, because that will allow you not only to achieve something really cool, but also budget properly, <laughs> you know, so that's all related. That's all related, you know, budget and vision, unfortunately are very related. Um, and you need to have a, a vision that you could achieve within your budget. I'm not saying to think small, uh, but there are ways to drive uh, to drive your budget to get your be- the best bang for your buck, and that's something I feel like I'm still learning. Is like how okay, I have this budget. How am I going to get the best bang for the dollar on that budget? You know, who do I need to work with? How can I work this budget to allow me to achieve my vision? There is a emotional attachment that the audience will form to a film, and that you also uh, as a composer will come in and become attached, especially once you, you know, you, you have to become attached to a film to be able to write the music for it. Um, so what then is the balance that you strike between the reality of those budget constraints and like, man, this, this film is speaking to me. Like I really want to be able to do this, you know, which I'm sure happens all the time, but how do you balance those? You know, that's why it's all the more important to kind of start out, in a, with a little bit of reality, you know, saying, okay, yeah. I know what we could achieve and then go into the vision. It, it, you're, what you're getting to is something very intangible, which you're right. It's hard to right. balance the desire and the, the love of something. You know, I'm, I, I, I like to imagine it's like the love for a child, which is boundless. You know, you have this boundless love, but then, okay, college is going to cost $300,000, you know, so, okay, like, okay, my love isn't that boundless, like, you know, like, can we go to a state school, you know? So I think, I think, I think, you know, that's, it's, the, I think it's that exact kind of same, same thing where you obviously want the best for something, but there's also a reality you're dealing with. You're dealing in a business, you know, you're dealing in, you know, if you overspend, you know, people are going to look at you as like, oh, we spent too much on the music. I don't want to hire that composer again. And, you know, that's the reason we didn't make as much money or that's why we lost money. You know, that sort of thing. At the same time, I, I have the reverse battle, too, where it's like I'm trying to get my musicians paid properly. So, like, let's get the budget up. So it's a very nuanced subject. Um, and sometimes there's just no answer. You love a project so much that but you have to make peace with it. OK, I can't have a 90 piece orchestra. But how do I make it work with 15 musicians? How do I make it work with one cello? You know, you just have to you just have to deal with the reality of it and make it the best you can make it. Joe, you're you're on a couple of big fantasy shows on Netflix. And I always like to ask this question to composers because I'm not a I'm not a composer. But like if someone says we want the sound of fantasy, what is that? Is there styles of music you lean on? Is there instruments um, like what, where do you go? You know, I try who's not to, musical who says, let's, let's get a know, good I've, fantasy. Score. I'm so fortunate in both these reality shows or reality shows. I'm so fortunate in both these fantasy shows, um, that the directors and, and, and producers came to me because they were fans of my work. So they immediately, you know, were, gave me a seat at the table, like an equal seat at the table, you know? So I've, 
been in situations before where I, you know, it's like, oh, Joe, you're lucky to have this gig. So, you know, they tell me what they want and I got to go do it. You know, I'm like the waiter at a, at a restaurant or so. It's like, okay. Yes, sir. Here's the steak, you know, but it's, it's awesome when it's a more fine dining experience where, you know, they go, Hey, you know, what's, what's good at this restaurant? You know, what, what might you recommend? What's fresh today? And so I get to, I get to have a conversation with them as an equal and it's less about what it works for, you know, oh, you know, Lord of the Rings was a fantasy, had orchestra, so we need orchestra. It's less about that, and it's more about what is unique to this series, what are the colors that we could have in our score to set our series apart? What can we use to tell our story in our unique way that when people hear the score, they know it's not Lord of the Rings. They know it's not Game of Thrones. They know it's Shadow and Bone, you know? And so that's really the core of the conversation. Um, there's certain inevitables, right? You know, to have a grand epic adventure in cinematic style, you need orchestra. You know, there's there's just some realities. Um, but then outside of that, you, you know, like where for both, it's funny, it's funny dealing with these two series that have a lot of quote unquote Slavic influence. Slavic is like just such a an all encompassing word. So I I've had to like dive deep into okay, Witcher is more you know Polish, um, oh right, uh, you know Polish Baltic, you know whereas uh, Shadow and Bone is more Russian, Bulgarian, you know. So it's it, it, and even there, there's lots of overlap and lots of places to crash into each other. And I'm trying to like keep them. Uh, I, I think we've done a good job so far of making the sound of the shows very different, which is which I'm very proud of. Um, but there's a lot to navigate there, and, and uh, that, I think, is one of the harder parts of my job because, not because it's hard for me musically, but it's so subjective. So I might do something that says, oh, this feels so Russian to me. This is great. And then you get a note that says, why does this sound so Spanish, you know, or something, you know, so like, right. you know, you really have to, that's why, that's yet another reason why starting early, I really recommend to everyone, I make it a point, you know, like, for instance, I'll fully admit I had not read The Witcher. So I was not like sitting there playing Witcher video games like um uh like our our lead actor Henry Cavill who like knows everything <laughs> right. about the he's like he's like a Wikipedia of Witcher apparently yeah. like he knows every little thing. I was like the opposite end. This was like what's the Witcher? You know, but I knew the people involved. I've read about it. I watched this season 1. I said this thing is freaking cool. Of now I'm a huge Witcher fan and I'm reading the books and I'm getting into it. And so, you know, I think I like to say that my first job is to become a fan you know my first job is to understand the story and then we could have these conversations where you know hopefully we can then because of the story drive the music into places um that are unique to that story talking about the witcher just real briefly because i know it's been out for a little bit for season two of that what did the creators of this i guess want to and the the showrunners want to change with season two musically uh it's it's a touchy subject because i i think the season one composers are fantastic incredibly talented yeah uh right. musicians so i really don't know the specifics of you know why they didn't come back for season two but i do know that everything that we spoke about in season two was story driven you know driving the story more and that was perhaps 
um, the one thing about season one, the only thing about the season one that I felt could have been a little bit better, and I'm just talking about myself personally when I watched season yeah. one. There's no, this is not, uh, this is Joe Trapanese <laughs> thoughts 100%. When I watched now, season- is that the characters though? Is it propelling like the char- the emotional kind of character beats throughout the story? Or when you say pr- kind of propelling the story, what do you mean? That's exactly, it's, it's getting to okay. the characters. The way I talk about it, and I talked about Shadow and Bone like this a lot too, is- I feel that we have this we're in this unique position musically to be able to say things. I'm going to get a little a little a little uh spiritual here, but I feel like we have the opportunity to say things that can never be said. You know that that we can say things that a character is feeling that they could never express. But that explains why that character behaves and and does and makes the choices that they are making so i think that's where i really try to focus on um my decisions musically is behind the intent of the characters you know it's it really is how awesome is it that you know on screen you could have one character ask another character hey are you in love with him and she says no and the music very clearly tells you she is 100% in love with him. You know, so obviously right. that's a very basic example. But I think that there's an opportunity we have as composers to, to achieve an understanding and depth of storytelling that, you know, when I first started doing this was so surface level, was like action scene, right? Action music, you know, it's like that's... Whereas right, now yeah, the yeah. older I get, yeah. the the more I realize this intense opportunity we have to 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 tell a story that in a way that can't be told in any other medium. You know, um, I, I think I think the best production designers work like this too. The best cin- cinematographers work like this too. That they're going to place the camera in a certain way or place an object on screen in a certain way that shows that reveals something about that character. Um, so I'm a big fan of doing that. I think, I think season one, like the music, again, like I said, the season one music of The Witcher is amazing. Those scene, themes yeah. are beautiful. And I think, I think it was also something that the producers were coming face to face with as well, that season one, they told the story in such a way out of time that, you know, some, some people were just kind of along for the ride and didn't really understand the intent of the characters and how they moved through it, which is, I think, explains right. why season two is told in a linear way that they well, wanted and it's just to, interesting yeah. also like with feature films anytime you do a sequel or you know a third or a fourth or however many you know a studio will make of some some properties like the music there is always kind of a lineage that goes back to the original or at least the film before that but um but the music is asked to do different things and um i mean usually when it's the best it's to support the story but um but it's always kind of evolving and starting to do something different and starting to do something new. And, you know, let's story's different. You know, it's not the same story in every sequel. So um, it has to be different. But just the the evolution of how those things, you know, start to change and start to evolve is really interesting. When you had said you have to become a fan, I, I was just curious, when when you get picture and you're secretly Joe Trapanese watching this at home and you're not a fan, but you know that you still have a creative job <laughs> to do to support the film. Like that must be kind of a pickle. Well, well, the two things I'll say on that, you know, one is that's why I'm very cautious about what I say yes to. You know, and I know that I'm, I'm in a position that, you know, so many other people would 
kill to be in, you know, the, the ability to turn down at work. You know, I, I remember being, you know, 22 years old in LA and saying yes to anything that came my way. So, so I want to be very clear here that I, 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 I know I'm in a position of privilege at this point in my career, but I also want to say to those 22 year olds who are saying yes to everything that there is going to be a point where what you say yes and no to really does determine where your career goes. And so, you know, I make it a point to say no to things um, when I'm not a fan. If, if, if I'm in a position where I don't need the money and I don't need the work and I don't like the project and I, you know, don't like the people involved or whatever, et cetera, there's a million lists, you know, um, that I will say no, you know, because I'm not in the business of just being a clearinghouse, you know, and there are composers out there who highly disagree with me. They say, you never know where a project will go. You have to say yes to everything that comes your way. And that's good on them. But that avoids more and more. That avoids me being in a situation you described, Kenny, where I'm watching something. I'm like, why am I doing this? Now, inevitably, inevitably, the nature of things is that every once in a while, I find myself in front of something that I'm like, oh, interesting. They went in a different direction. And I, I, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> but, but, I'll tell you what to do there. What to do there is you find the way in. You find, you know, maybe this isn't going to be the project that I had said yes to, but this, there's an opportunity for me to do X. You know, there's an opportunity for me to do this. There's an opportunity for me to try something new, to, to do something. You find something about it to be a fan, to engage with, to, to try, um, to really, and, and I think, I think, you know, that's something really important that we find a way to engage with the film. I remember when I was doing uh, the Divergent series, um, you know, it was a it was a it was a film where, you know, I looked at I was like, maybe on the surface, this isn't a movie that I would have by default gone to see myself in a theater, you know, because I'm you know, like why a, you know, a lot of more female driven, you know, so I was like, OK, maybe I'm not. But then but then I was like, well, that's my challenge. Let me make it into that movie I want to see. You know, so that was my way in there. And so I think that's um, just as valid as saying, I am in love with this movie. This is the coolest thing ever. You know, like, I think it's just as valid to say, I'm going to make this the movie I'm going to love. You know, so it's a great challenge. Every every project has its challenge. And it's up to us to kind of engage with it and, 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 and come up with something. I would imagine you learn a lot yeah. from that, too. Oh, 100%. 100%. You learn about yourself. Just in general, just... Yeah. Yeah. You learn about yourself, how far you could drive yourself um, and how far you can't drive yourself. How the times where you go, you know, that was really a struggle. And maybe I'm going to say no to something like that again or something, you know, something like that. I think it's a constant evolution and learning process. I, I, I think for those of us who do this as a career, you know, that it's not just a, you know, a, a side hobby or something. For those of us who do this as a career, you know, you're really learning learning something every time you do it you're 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 discovering something new about yourself because you're not just doing this for pleasure you know you're not doing this is a job you know so you're learning something how far you could drive yourself every time you do this we've talked a lot um about kind of some of the process and like finding your way into uh different films that you work on and the music and kind of finding that foundation for things um I, I wanted to ask you this, given that, you know, with all of your your many successes and accomplishments over, you know, the last many years, what is the low point that you consider of your career and how um, do you get out of it? 
Oh, gosh, that's a difficult question. You know, I try to not think in those terms. I try to think in like this is just one long journey forward. Um, that being said, I, I, look, I think I think I'll answer the question in a more cryptic way. I think, you know, <laughs> the the I think the most negative part about what we do is we are only known for or we're only con- we're do the people who hire us and pay our salaries were only as valuable as our last project, you know? So um, if, if your last projects were not making money at the box office, then you're a very little value to people. And it gets really difficult in this town. I've learned the hard way. You know, you think you're friends with people. You think that there's, you know, people who are going to answer the phone and believe in you and, and, and be passionate about you. But things get really interesting when you do a few projects in a row that don't make a lot of money, and all of a sudden they don't know you anymore, you know. And and that is something really interesting about this town. Or or you know you're up for a project somewhere and they say to the to your filmmaker, oh you can't hire Joe. We want you to hire this person who's more hot right now, or or this person who just got nominated, right. you know, you know. And and you you know that I think is the most difficult part of what we do because. It hurts, you know, like you are striving, at least for me, I'm striving for great art. And that has nothing to do with awards, box office, um, honors, whatever, income, royalties, whatever. What I'm striving for is making something really great. But then the gatekeepers to making those great things are being driven by the business. And you need to have a really healthy relationship um, with that dark side or else you're going to re- go into a really dark place. You might wind up, you, you know, I think um, a while ago I tried something different. I started out, I started becoming more picky and I wasn't getting some of the projects I wanted. So I said, so I tried the opposite and I said, you know, let me just like stretch myself some more and have my team do a little bit more stuff and, and let me get some more TV shows going and stuff. And that was, I guess that was the low point for me. That was the most unhappy I've ever been because I lowered my bar. I lowered my standards and I feel like I did some damage to my reputation. And because all of a sudden I was doing like really low bar stuff. So it's taken me a long time, but I feel like I've built the bar back up where it's like Joe does things of a certain quality. And, and that's know, interesting because you can understand the business side of that being, you know, if you always need to have some hot project going on, then have a bunch of projects and one of them is bound to be a hot project. You know, at least you have a higher chance. But then and again, then more executives will say, hey, that guy might be good. And that's how, you know, that's one way to look at it. You know, I, th- I think, look, I think one of the simplest ways to look at it is to model your career or at least model the choices you make on who you're a fan of. You know, mm. so there are some composers who do a dozen TV shows a year. And if you're a fan of that, if that's what you want to do, they make a lot of money. They make more money than I'll ever make. Um, and, and that's great. You know, great. For, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I have no judgment of that. I just know that that's not what I want to be. And so I, you know, I drive my career into a into a certain place. Um the other Who do you model your career after? I'll I'm not gonna, now I have no, to I'm not gonna, no, I'm not going to tell you that. Just just look <laughs> at the choices I make, and maybe you'll figure that out for yourselves. But I think, oh, okay. you know, All I right. think, look, I think, um, 
I, I had one really smart thing I was going to say, and then I forgot it. So that shows you how how smart it <laughs> You're was. You're going to say who you model your career? At. No, no. I, I, look, I think I think I think um, the fact is, I think as composers, we give way too much. I'll say one really important thing that isn't what I was going to hmm. say, but uh, but I think it's equally important. <laughs> Sorry, I'm throwing you uh, off. No, it's okay. Uh, you know, I think us as composers, we give um, agents and managers and publicists and external things way too much agency over us. I think we are more responsible than we think for our own success, if that makes sense. Of course, I say this from a privileged position of having a great agent and a publicist and a website and all this stuff. So, sure. so I get how ridiculous that can sound. But you know, my agent and my publicist are not the ones creating new fans of my work. It's my work that's creating new fans of my work. They're just there to grease the wheels and make sure I get paid properly um, and to take care of any problems that arise. So I think, you know, I like saying that to young composers because I think I can't tell you how many times, you know, oh, I need an agent. Who should be my agent? It's like, that's the last thing you should be thinking about, you know, because my thought is like, you know, am I, what, what is, what does this project need? What can I do for this project? How can I explore a sonic environment to make this project better? What does my filmmaker, what is my, what music is my filmmaker a fan of? Do I like that music? How do I bring that, a uh, 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 reflection of that music into this while still making it my own? Those are the problems I try to deal with. Um, and, and look, yeah. I'm not and you saying you don't want to outsource that to an agent's decision. That's or, exactly or right. And, and I'm not going to yeah. sit here and pretend I don't think about the business too. I'm always talking to my agent about business stuff as well. Right. But, but, but my goal really is to focus on the creative, creative side. Uh, before we go, Joe, uh, when when we talked to you on season two of Score the Podcast, uh, you had mentioned that hip hop sort of raised you musically, and um, your boy Dre just did the halftime show. I was just wondering what your thoughts were of it, and I'm, I know that that spoke to to young Joe uh, that halftime show. <laughs> oh man! Well, it's great to see not only Dre but so many musicians up there who are from LA and who are incredible. Uh, like Adam Blackstone, you know, like I, I got a chance to work with, uh, Adam last year on the, uh, 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 the anthem for the Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, he's always there, like working with these incredible musicians. So it was great to like not only see the artists I grew up with, um, <laughs> performing on stage, but then to like know some of the people behind them. Like I actually know a little bit the person who directed the whole show, who came up with the concept. And so it's amazing to think like, wow, like these are people who like I've had the chance to like work with and interact with. And so it was, it hit me on both sides, like how lucky I am to be in this industry. Um, and B how awesome that show was just from a career. I mean, like I remember the look of horror on my mom's face as she drove me to school, as I sang Snoop Dogg in the, in the back seat, you know, like, <laughs> so, so to hear Snoop Dogg, you know, on the stage of the Super Bowl, you know, everything kind of came full circle. So yeah, that was really, really legit. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. Well, it's been good catching up with you. Um, congrats on the continued success. Uh, Spiderhead is later this year. Is it summer? I have no clue. I mean, that's the funny thing about this new world, right? You know, I remember I got a taste of the old world, quote unquote, where, you know, you work on a film at a certain point of the year, and you know, oh, it's going to come out around here. So we need to be done here. And like, it used to be that in December, things slow down and it is 100% round the clock all the time. Work is happening, and you have no idea when it's going to come out. And so it's really interesting when you work on a project and 
literally I've I've done things where I finish a project and it doesn't come out for one year, two years, and and you go, oh, I worked on yeah. that film that is out now. <laughs> you know, you go, oh, I forgot about that. Um, you know, and that I think is the <laughs> it's out already exactly. Yeah. I think that's the one the one sad thing I have to say, or one of the sad things is just that you you know it. I wish. I wish I could have like the deepest connection with every project where I remember every note, but I think this is what comes with age where you work on enough projects, enough time goes by it. It just kind of, (laughs) yeah, it just kind of turns into like a big string of like, Oh, like what was I doing a year ago? I don't even know anymore, you know? So, which is why it's all the more important, I think to make sure we don't lose a life, you know, that we keep a healthy work life balance. Cause at the end of the day, work is just going to be a blur and you're going to want to make sure you cherish some of the life things that are happening or else that's going to be a blur too. So that's where I'm at now too, you know, just trying to focus on on balancing all this craziness. So thank you for having me guys. Really awesome This chatting. was a lot of fun. Joe, yeah. thanks for coming on, man. It's always good to see you and hopefully next time we talk uh we won't be on satellite delay. all good all good i'll talk with you however it is guys we could we could talk via text message or telegram or you know or western union next time it's all good always a pleasure (laughs) thanks joe thanks joe